Welcome to the Tiny Living Beings podcast. I'm your host, Julia Van Etten. Each episode, I have a conversation with a scientist about a microorganism they like and why it's interesting to them. Our planet is full of billions of different microscopic organisms, most of which are still unknown to science. The ones we do know are diverse and strange. This week, I spoke to Dr. Arwa Gaber about pollenella, a photosynthetic amoeba that she studied during her PhD. Before I play the conversation, I just want to talk a little bit about amoebas, because this is the sixth episode of this podcast and the third amoeba episode. I let the guests pick their organism, but the reason why I didn't space out these interviews more is because an amoeba is more of a functional rather than a phylogenetic classification, meaning that amoebas aren't bound together by evolutionary relatedness. For example, the white blood cells that function in our immune systems are technically amoeboid cells due to their shape and how they move and quote unquote eat. That is, they do phagocytosis or engulf other cells or particles. Episode one was Seth's about Naglaria fowleri, which is in the phylum Percolozoa, a group of protists that are only amoeboid for part of their life cycle. Then in episode three, I spoke to Kyle about Physarum, a slime mold, which is in the phylum Amoebozoa, which is more closely related to our animal phylum Metazoa, where we are, than to Percolozoa, where Naglaria is. And so today we talk about Pollinella, which are part of the phylum Circozoa or the group Rhizaria, which groups the Pollinella generally, albeit distantly, with other organisms like ciliates and diatoms. All of this is to say that these three amoebas are all protists, but protists originated around three or so billion years ago and have radiated and diverged so much from the original ancestral eukaryotic cell that the three organisms here that are called amoebas are actually divergent or unrelated to one another by billions of years and look different, are different sizes, have different ecological roles, and share few characteristics with one another other than being a unicellular protist that our human brains that are obsessed with classifying have confusingly grouped together as amoebas because they move a certain way. That was a long intro, but I wanted to clarify why this isn't an amoeba podcast, but why I'm really grateful to have three amoeba experts to talk to whose work probably hardly overlaps with one another. The amoeba that Arwa discusses this week is pollinella, which gains a majority of its energy through photosynthesis. This is significant because all other eukaryotic photosynthetic organisms on the planet, that is algae and land plants, gain their photosynthetic organelle through the process of endosymbiosis, which began with primary endosymbiosis, which involved one bacterial acquisition around two or so billion years ago, which Arwa will discuss further. Pollinella, on the other hand, is the only other eukaryotic organism on Earth that we know of that is photosynthetic but it gets its ability to photosynthesize from an independent source. Next week's episode will also discuss something similar, but not in an amoeba. I want to add that these are complex topics, but some of my favorites in biology to talk about, and I plan to cover them more in future episodes. So hopefully this can just be your first foray into the world of primary endosymbiosis, if this is a topic you're unfamiliar with. And I hope that we did a good job breaking this process down as it relates to photosynthetic pollinella. For more information about microbes of the podcast, follow at couch underscore microscopy on Instagram or at couch microscopy on Twitter. While some of the content on this podcast may be relevant to human or veterinary medicine, this information is not medical advice. The views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the host and guests and do not reflect the views of any institution. Enjoy the episode!
Should we start? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Welcome to Tiny Living Beings. Today, I have Dr. Arwa Gaber, who recently received her PhD from Rutgers University's Molecular Bioscience Program. Hi, Arwa. How's it going? Hi, Julia. It's going well. Before, How are you? I'm great. Before we start, can you just talk about your background and the work that you do a little bit? Yeah. So I've been doing research since I was an undergrad. And I went to Brooklyn College. I also did my master's at Brooklyn College as well. I studied organisms like Chlamydomonas, which is a classical algae. And then I, as a research assistant later on, after my master's, I worked in a lab that worked with very diverse microalgae. And one of them that I focused on was Synodesmus. Mm. And the the focus of the study was really to look at biofuels in algae and how can we utilize algae to improve biofuels. That's awesome. So lots of green algae. Yes. So what organism are we going to be talking about today? Today, I'm going to be talking about Polynella, which is the organism I focused on for my PhD work. So the funny story is when I was working as a research assistant, Bhattacharya, who's my PI as a PhD student, came in and did a seminar and he was talking about Polynella. And I remember sitting in the audience saying, oh my goodness, this is really interesting. You know, and then fast forward a couple of years, I think three years later, I actually joined the lab and and started working on Polynella. So did you end up contacting him and saying, I saw your talk? Or did you did you talk to him that day? Or did you reach out a few years later? No, he, he actually knew my boss at the time. Oh, okay. So uh, Dr. Uh, Jorgen Pale, because they both worked on algae. And he met with him after and we kind of had a really brief meeting, you know, with him. No question. It was just like, as they were passing, he introduced us to him. And it didn't cross my mind that I will ever study or, you know, go into that lab. I was just like, if I ever get into a PhD program, this would be something cool to look into. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then when I applied to the program, I was like, oh, my goodness. I remember this guy who's studying this really cool organism. And we met up and we talked about Polynella. And at the time, most of the work was done. Most of the, I would say, the lab work was done with collaborators in Korea. So Mm. it wasn't, you know, there wasn't a live Polynella cell in the Bhattacharya lab. But I was adamant about studying that organism. I thought it meant to be. And here we are. (laughs) That's a great story. So Polynella is a genus, right? Of And these are amoebas. And you studied mostly Polynella chromatophora. And so I know that this is like, this is no ordinary amoeba. So can you explain why it's so special and why people really want to study it? Right. So let me just say Polynella chromatophora was the first right, right. Um, species of Polynella that was photosynthetic that was discovered, right? Yes. And it was discovered in the 1895 by a German scientist. Yes. Now, over time, people grew interest in that organism. Most, I would say the data that we knew about was from Polynella chromatophora, mm-hmm. right? Our lab studied Polynella micropora, oh, which yes. is another sister photosynthetic organism. Now, what's really cool about these guys is that they are 
like you said, they're an amoeba, and they are the second primary independent photosynthetic organism on the planet that we know of, right? Yes. And the first one being known is the ancestor of the Archaeoplastida, right? Mm-hmm. So the Archaeoplastida was the first event where a protist engulfed and retained a photosynthetic cyanobacteria. And that evolved into the first eukaryotic photosynthetic organism. And that gave rise to the, all the plants, the algae, you know, glycophytes that we have right now and we know of. Now, that event happened 1.6 billion years ago. So it was a very long time. People were always curious about how did this event happen, what you had to have initially in order to establish such a complex processes, right? So Paulinella provides a really great model in that it is the most recent and independent primary endosymbiosis event involving cyanobacteria and a eukaryotic protist or amoeba. We say recent, it happened around maybe 120 million years ago, but relatively to The first event, which happened 1.6 billion years ago, that's really recent. Yeah. So what that means that it's in its early stages of making this relationship work, right? So we Mm -hmm. can use that and study basically endosymbiosis. How do you get something very complex, such as you know a cyanobacteria, into a host and have them work together to establish? this, you know, host organelle status. I think that was a really great explanation. And so (laughs) I know a lot of listeners might not be familiar with endosymbiosis, but like just to recap what you said, this process that we're seeing in this amoeba, it's happened twice that we know of. And the first time you said was when Archaeoplastida evolved. And so people listening who like algae, Archaeoplastida is this super group of algae, and that includes green algae, red algae, and glycophytes, as you mentioned. And, and, and plants. Oh, yeah. And so, and yeah, and land plants are part of the, the green algal tree. And I always neglect to mention them because I'm an algae person. And then, <laughs> and so every other photosynthetic eukaryote on the planet is, it, it, ha- it has its plastid or its photosynthetic organelle from another type of algae, which is a whole other process we can get into. But so everything is related to that first event, except this amoeba that you study, Polynella, which has a photosynthetic organelle from a completely separate event that happened like over a billion years later. So that's so interesting. So I guess we can like witness the whole process in action. And I guess also to people listening who maybe don't think they're familiar, what's what's another example of primary endosymbiosis? So another example of primary endosymbiosis is that that gave rise to the mitochondria, right? So at one point, you have, again, a protist-like cell that engulfed and retained a non-photosynthetic bacteria, and that eventually evolved to the organelle that we know of as the mitochondria. Right. So you have two different events. You have a primary endosymbiosis that gave rise to the mitochondria, which is used for energy processing. And then you have an event that gave rise to photosynthesis in a eukaryotic lineage, basically. And that gave rise, you know, to what we said, all the algae implants. Cool. 
So why do we care about photosynthesis? Why is it interesting that these eukaryotic cells, so like somewhat complex cells with nuclei and organelles, why is it interesting to us that these cells are acquiring photosynthesis? Well, photosynthesis in general is very important. I mean, if you care about breathing. (laughs) (laughs) That's a a great answer. (laughs) It's, It's basically these cyanobacteria that actually change the atmosphere of Earth, right? Now you have oxygen in the atmosphere and you had these organisms evolving to utilize oxygen for energy purposes. So in that aspect... You know, you have this fundamental thing that we're all using, which produces oxygen, but also photosynthesis is basically the primary producer. Yeah. They're the primary organisms which in which every other living organism depends on. So that's a big deal. And you also have this new aspect of utilizing photosynthesis to obtain a renewable energy, you know, cleaner energy source. So there is, you know, it's very, very important to study it from very different aspects. And I think studying endosymbiosis, which is the primary event that gave rise to photosynthesis in eukaryotes, is very important because we will be able to get the basis of how did this happen? What would you have needed? Like, does it happen multiple times? Does it fail? Why does it fail? What is the most successful scenario? And how long does it take to evolve to this very robust algae or photosynthetic organism? And pollinella seems pretty smart because, well, I don't want to personify a microbe, but you mentioned that in ancient times there were cyanobacteria on Earth. And we can talk more about that if you want. But they oxygenated the planet when they evolved. And so 1.6 billion years ago, some sort of eukaryote decided to take one of those up and harness its power for itself. And then, you know, it had to be a whole other billion and a half years later for another organism to do it. But Pollinella has done it. And now there's a bunch of Polynella lineages and they're kind of using this bacterium and keeping it for themselves. And they didn't have to reinvent the wheel. They didn't have to reinvent photosynthesis. They could just steal it from something else, which just seems really efficient to me. Yeah, for sure. And I'm studying Polynella. I've always believed that this cannot be the only time that this happened. Sure. I, I always thought that this happened many times, but they were unsuccessful because you needed to be ready to tackle the, I would say for the lack of a better word, the baggage that comes with photosynthesis. Sure. You know what I mean? So Polynella is a really interesting organism. And I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that this amoeba is sort of like a a junkie, right? It it has a lot of horizontal gene transfers and that it used to retain from a lot of the bacteria that it would ingest. So it I believe at some point it had enough toolkit in its genome to actually be able to make this relationship work with the cyanobacteria. Yeah, so that's a really interesting point. And like you mentioned, you said 
you know, this maybe didn't only happen once or twice in history. Maybe it happened and was unsuccessful. And I think that's a great point because I often forget most organisms that have been on this planet are extinct. The average species, however you want to classify what a species is, only lives for like, you know, a couple hundred million years. So, so right, this could have happened other times. And and then you mentioned the horizontal gene transfers and stuff. So can you actually talk a little bit about I guess if I'm thinking about this might have happened other times have been unsuccessful, I'm assuming that means that so many other organisms are eating cyanobacteria. And that's where I guess they think this might have arisen. So can you kind of explain the process from a non-photosynthetic organism and how it gets the cyanobacteria and then how it incorporates it in the cell and it, how it becomes an organelle? Because I know, I know for pollinella, that's kind of a complicated story. So can you break it down a little bit? Yeah, of course. So basically, in the case of, I would say, Archaeoplastida and Polynella, mm-hmm. you have this heterotrophic amoeba, right? Heterotrophic Polynella sister. And it basically feeds on the bacteria in the environment. Okay. It, that's how it, it makes energy for the cell. So in this specific scenario, the heterotrophic ancestor of photosynthetic polynella engulfed and retained uh, a cyanobacteria. And in this case, the cyanobacteria is an alpha cyanobacteria, which is a different, I would say, type of bacteria than that we've seen in the archaeoplast. Okay. That's important because that's like, I guess that's the proof you needed to show that those were two independent evolutionary events, right? Exactly. So everything that came from the Archaeoplastida ancestor lineage actually contained a, a, a beta cyanobacteria type. And this one contains an alpha. So this is a further proof that it actually obtained an, from an independent event. So that, yeah, so now, that just means, so that just means that they're plastids, each of them have chloroplast or plastids, and they just look like different types of cyanobacteria. There's a certain characteristics of that cyanobacteria that's a little different, which is basically the, you know, they have alpha type carboxazole with different, (laughs) you know, number of genes. So basically, for the most part, they're very similar. It's just the the genes that would be found in one cyanobacteria versus the other. Okay, cool. So yeah, we have this amoeba that engulfed and retained an alpha cyanobacteria. And then it actually goes through a process of endosymbiont genome reduction. So the cyanobacteria loses a lot of its genome. It goes through genome reduction. Now, either these genes are completely lost from the genome, or they're transferred into the host genome in a process called endosymbiotic gene transfer. And we, we see evidence of genes that were cyanobacteria origin that are now found in the nuclear genome of photosynthetic polynella. That's very cool. And then what happens is then the the host evolves a, a protein import system, right? You have genes that are now in the nuclear genome that are encoded by the nuclear genome, and they have to be shuttled into the cyanobacteria, or we should say, you know, the endosymbiont now mm-hmm. in order to function, right? So you have that. And then ultimately you have this metabolic crosswork where, you know, everything is in sync. You know, the, the host and the endosymbiont are now working in this very synced function. That's so interesting. 
And so you said, you know, once the cyanobacterial cell becomes an endosymbiont in the host cell, you said it like loses a bunch of genes. Like, so why, why are those genes going away? Can you explain a little bit about that process? Yeah. So that process happens as a result of a Mueller's ratchet. So basically it happens in smaller non-recombinant genome. Okay. If you have a genome that lacks recombination and is very, very small, Mueller's ratchet is this systematic wise evolution of genome reduction that just takes place. Okay. And yeah, so basically, if those genes happen to transfer into the host, then great, because you get to use those if they are completely lost. And because this is a non-recombinant genome, they're they're gone. You don't have a second copy. Okay. And then this is good timing, because the episode before this, I interviewed Alvin, who studies viruses, and he was talking about like recombinant viruses. So like, when you say a recombinant genome, you just mean it's not linking up with other genomes in any sort of like sexual reproduction. So there's no introduced variation. So if it's not recombining with anything, it's going to accumulate bad mutations. And then when it accumulates bad mutations, the genes aren't going to function anymore. Or they're transferred to the nucleus and that nucleus does recombine probably with other things. So it, it doesn't lo- necessarily lose those genes. I thought you explained that really well. That was really cool. Um, so because you have the endosymbiont losing a lot of genome, yeah, this is why previously I said, you know, polynella is great because it have accumulated a lot of these horizontal gene transfers from other bacteria. Well, so in Polynella, we've seen evidence that a lot of the genes that have been lost from the endosymbiont have been rescued by genes from the host, but have horizontal gene transfer origin, right? They don't come directly from the host. They come from another bacteria that the host engulfed, and that gene happened to integrate into the host genome. Is that all a chance thing? So if it gets a gene from another bacterium horizontally, which means it just like acquires it during its lifetime and then can pass it down. Like if it gets one of these genes and that gene compensates for a function lost from the endosymbiont, is that's just, is that random? Like it has to be random, right? I feel like I don't have a a solid, you know, answer for that, but I feel like it it would have to be random because- this is why I think Polynella was successful. It happened to have the mm-hmm. right genes that would help maintain that endosymbiont. Well, and that was kind of like a leading question because because my work is on horizontal gene transfer. And I'm always trying to prove to people that it's happening so much. So like, I guess the idea here is, you know, this cell is probably receiving a lot of different transfers from a lot of different bacteria. So chances are it's going to receive a gene or a sequence at some point that is helpful to it. So that, that was just me, me selfishly trying to trying to promote this idea. But yeah, thank you. <laughs> but I would, I want to clarify yeah. that the majority of the, the genes in Polynella that rescued a lot of functions in the endosymbionts are of host origin. Okay, cool, cool. So this is, you know, although horizontal gene transfer play a really major role, most of the genes that are transferred into the endosymbionts are host. So that's fascinating because that means that it's the right host because a lot of things 
are eating cyanobacteria and maybe keeping them around as endosymbionts, but maybe they don't have those genes that the bacterium needs, right? So that's that's interesting. Can you talk more about that's that? Very interesting. So yeah, I've studied the rescue of the nucleotide biosynthesis in the endosymbiont. And I think I don't quite have my numbers memorized. Yeah. But for the most part, it was basically a lot of the proteins that are transferred into the endosymbiont were encoded by genes from the host. Cool. Right. So there's always like two copies, mm. either through gene duplication or something like that. And that was transferred into the endosymbiont. Cool. And we know, let me just clarify, we know that these proteins function in the endosymbionts because they actually encode this very conserved amino acid sequence that was discovered to be a transport signal into the chromatophore. That's really interesting. So Arwa, you've done a really good job explaining how two organisms become one. So how an amoeba that eats bacteria became an amoeba that basically turned a bacterium into an organelle. So that's really interesting. And for people listening, that's how that's how mitochondria and plastids or chloroplasts came about. So like all of our cells exist because of that, because we all have mitochondria in all of our cells. So let's talk a little bit more about pollinella in nature. So I wanted to ask, you know, it's photosynthetic. So is that its only role in nature? Is it a primary producer? Like what does it do? Where is it found? Pollinella is found in very, like, most of them are freshwater, but there has been one sister photosynthetic species that was found in salt water. And they, they basically, if you're searching for them, they're probably found in these shady areas with a lot of leaves and yeah. things like that. I mostly looked at them in the lab setting, mm-hmm. so I know a lot about their behavior in a, a yeah. flask. Right. Yeah. You know, I'm sure that they behave differently in the environment. Sure. Now, sure. because they grow really slowly. Yeah. I don't know if they <laughs> super slow. I don't know <laughs> if they have a role in the ecosystem yet. Right. Right. Well, and, and you I, know remember, what I mean, yeah. And I remember we were all so proud you were able to finish your PhD in five years because your cells just like, like, my cells were doubling every day and your cells were doubling every week, if that. And it seemed like a really hard organism to grow. And I, I remember when you were doing your work, you were studying, I guess, different light levels. And correct me if I'm wrong, but they, they live in low light. So like, so like, what's that about? Because they're, they're photosynthetic. So you'd think, yeah. oh, they want to take up all the light and make energy out of the right. photons of light. But it seems like they kind of don't. What's that about? Yeah, yeah. So- so that was an interesting aspect of pollinella. Well, let me just initially say they're really slow growers. Yeah. They are by far the slowest phototrophs on the planet <laughs> that we know of. And what they basically do, it, it takes them about a week to double, right? And yeah. they're very sensitive to the environment. You know, I'll get a culture and then week later they crashed because either like the temperature went down by one or two degrees or the light was too bright so they grow in light of maximum of 30 micro einstein right which is really low for photosynthetic organism and 
one of the things that I was interested in is to look into why are these a sensitive to light and B grow very slowly. Right. So what I did is we took a bioinformatics approach and then we took a biophysical approach. So we looked at the photo systems in Polynella and I focused on photosystem two. So basically photosystem two is this protein found in the chromatophore that actually harvests the light energy and uses it to make energy for the cell. Yeah. Right. And then when we did look at that, it's very interesting because if they're not growing fast, they'll probably have, you know, some damage in the photosystem or some gene that's lost and you know it's it's incomplete in terms of a function but based on the work that we did we showed that actually it's fine right mm. so photosystem 2 has all the genes that it needs and you know all the biophysical or kinetics of the photosystem 2 is actually very similar to the kinetics that we see in plants which mm. is very interesting. Yeah. We did a comparison between a cyanobacteria, pollinella, and uh, an algae. And it seemed that, you know, cyanobacteria are really fast, right? The kinetics for photosystem two is really fast. That means it uses the light energy pretty well and it can divide pretty quickly. Now, if we look at something like a, an algae, you know, they, they grow pretty much fast, but not as fast as the cyanobacteria, mm-hmm. obviously. And then, so when we looked at the kinetics, it seems that pollinella is in that middle stage between, okay. you know, not cyanobacteria anymore and more like algae. If it really likes low light, you said 30 microine seconds. How low is that? Is there something you can compare that to? So direct sunlight is about 2000 microeinstein. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. And I would say cyanobacteria such as Synecoccus can can actually grow under a light of 500. Okay. Okay. So this is like, it's really dim. I've seen your incubators. It's really dim. They're almost in the dark. I'm surprised they're getting any light in there at all. But I know. And it took me a while to accept that. (laughs) Yeah. Because I was just like, there's no way that they just need this amount of light. And yeah. (laughs) <laughs> well, and so so if they're growing in such low light, I guess that tells us something about what they're doing in nature because there's so many other photosynthesizers that live right at the surface that like try to get all the light they want. And you wonder if pollinella grows so slowly, why is it even alive? Why isn't it extinct? But maybe it's because it's just like one of these few things that live at this low light level and they just like the low light and that's how they survive. Yeah, it could definitely be a strategy. Why does it need to grow really fast? Yeah. It's you know a, what I mean? A, yeah, maybe. It could be like this. Because yeah. it seems like, although, you know, we believe that they die at higher light intensity because mm-hmm. they don't have a robust photo protection yet. Okay. Right? Sure. Because they've lost some of their photo protection. And that is the cause of being light sensitive. But the fact that they don't grow fast, even at a low light or the optimum condition, is because. You know, why would that? I feel like that is a strategy. That yeah, it must be. Paulinella has just like everybody else is growing really fast. And when you grow really fast, you need to be able to take up 
CO2 really fast and, and things like that. And it's just like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's cool with, you know, what's it's doing now? Like there is no purpose for it to grow really fast. No, that makes sense. I mean, we always assume, oh, it's better to be bigger. It's better to be faster. But that's not always the case in nature. And a lot of these algae that bloom to really high biomass levels they end up, they bloom and bloom and bloom, and then the ecosystem can't sustain it. So then the population crashes almost down to zero or, or maybe zero. So maybe, you know, this is just pollinella. Yeah. It, I don't know. Like, I don't think we know that much about its blooms in nature, but it seems like it's avoiding that problem. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. And it's probably part of, like, we don't know what happened in, you know, previous evolution of, right. you know, synthetic organism. Maybe it is a stage that they undergo where they, you know, they're evolving, they they try to maintain low profile, low growth, with what it has, it doesn't have enough, or it doesn't have, I guess, all the genes or the, uh, the metabolic crosswork to be able to grow at a very high, you know, number. So it could be an evolution thing that over time, it actually learns how to, to be very synced with with the endosymbiont, or in the case of pollinella, the chromatophore. At the same time, it could be a strategy of like, why compete with other organisms that are growing really fast and things like that. Yeah. And you've mentioned that this is a really good model system because, you know, it acquired this photosynthetic organelle just 100 million years ago, which in evolutionary time is very recently. And you also mentioned when you were talking about the kinetics of the photosynthesis that it's in between other algae and the cyanobacteria. So can you just talk a little bit more about how it's like a snapshot we're looking at one period of time, but like we're assuming that going forward, it's going to lose more genes and look more like the algae we know, right? Like, is that yeah. the assumption? Yes. So that's the assumption. The interesting thing is in, let's say, in something like Archaeoplastida, like clammy, for example. Clammy is the green alga chlamydomonas. Right. It has the plastid genome is around like 80 to 20 kilobases okay that's tiny right and it the plastid would encode about 80 to 200 genes okay now case for polynomial micropora which is what i study the plastid protein encoding genes are about 860 okay wow and and then like i'm assuming the cyanobacteria have even more than that yeah so the cyanobacteria plat you know something like synecoccus it has around 3,000 okay, uh, cool. protein encoding genes, right? So it's it's definitely in an in-between stage, but we're assuming that it's actually headed towards more of Archaeoplastida, you know, uh, lineage such as Chlamydomonas or other algae where, where the genome reduction is further and a lot of these genes are transferred into the host okay. uh, nuclear genome. Yeah, so that's that's so interesting because it's – I think in science, I know just from being on Twitter or Instagram and seeing people be angry and very skeptical of science, like I think this is such a good example of just how science gets done, right? Like we can't go back in time. There's not amoeba fossils – or there's not a lot of amoeba fossils from over a billion years ago and we can't go to 100 million years ago, but 
you know, if you see something happen a couple different times the same way, and we have the finished or near finished version in algae, but then we see a not finished version in Polynella, that's how we form hypotheses. And that's how science works. I think a lot of people expect scientists to just have all the answers, but we don't have the answers, but we have, you know, <laughs> questions, right? <laughs> Exactly. Like with questions, observations, and experiments, we get to, you know, resolve. And Paulinella, don't get me wrong, Paulinella is still very mysterious because there's a lot that we don't know about it. But we get to a point, we see similarities. We can't say for a fact that both Paulinella and Archaeoplastida ancestry went exactly through the same mechanistic approach the mechanism could be completely different but but the ultimate goal seems to be the same right like genome reduction you know development of an import system into the chromatophore or the plastid and then the metabolic crosstalk between the host and the endosymbiont now do we know for sure that the mechanisms that that we see discovered in polynella is the same in archaeoplastic my might be different mechanisms used, but the ultimate goal seems to be the same. Yeah, so that's cool. So it's like two examples that illustrate a similar process at different times. And yeah, there's probably differences, but you know, once you find a second example of something, it's like one more check in the column of things you need to determine if like something in biology is a truth or like a hypothesis is checking out. So that's that's really yeah. cool. Yeah. So Arwa, this has been so great. Is there anything else you want to talk about related to Paulinella or for science? I mean, with Paulinella, they're very cool. And like I said before, (laughs) although there was a lot of, you know, they grow really slow. And I think there's so much to learn from them. There is so much that have not been discovered. I feel like with the data that we have now, two more PhDs. Can, <laughs> can oh trust me because you know. yeah because I'm working on it a little bit now since you're gone and it's not part of my dissertation but there's a lot of work to be done there's a lot there's the c4 Ugh. you know metabolism there's this how much of the endosymbiont genes or the chromatophore genes are still in control by the endosymbionts itself versus the host there's so much and there there has been a lot of things out about Paulinella. So if you Google photosynthetic Paulinella, you see many papers. But I feel this is just a scratch of the surface. Yeah. Well, and then like, you know, I found that population, the southeastern United States. Right. We're trying to. Yeah. Well, we're trying to like I happened upon a couple cells with my microscope just for fun. And like we went back and found some more and we're trying now to do genome stuff or cultivate those. And it's it's really hard. I don't, I give Arwa a lot of credit because this organism, it's really <laughs> tiny. That's the other thing. Sometimes we think of amoebas as like bigger microbes. And I know I did a, a previous episode where we talked about slime molds and those amoebas can get huge. But this amoeba is like, what, 10 to 20 microns. It's so tiny. That's so tiny. Yeah. That's like, what is that? That's a a thousandth of a millimeter, basically. Like, that's how tiny it is. So they're very hard to work with. And Arwa's work is so impressive. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. They are amazing. Like, there are some times where it's just like, how did they do it? Yeah. (laughs) You know? 
Arwa, thank you so much for coming on. If listeners want to follow you or your work, where can they find you? Well, I have basically, I only have Research Gate or LinkedIn. Um, I can be found there. A lot of the papers that we published that are related to Paulinella are posted there if you're interested in reading more about that. If you just Google Paulinella, you know, <laughs> photosynthetic Paulinella, you'll see so many papers or review papers that will help you cool. learn a little bit more about this organism but they're really cool yeah follow arwa gabber on ResearchGate and linkedin i know you're very mysterious when it comes to social media <laughs> you don't have <laughs> i a am i mean i don't i don't have a twitter or facebook i'm really old school <laughs> yeah that's cool yeah that's cool well i'm so glad you came on i'm so glad we got to talk about paulinella i think this will be a really interesting episode yeah me too I'm going to take a picture of us. Hold on, before we... Woo! I give Arwa a lot of credit because that was a really complex topic to talk about in general terms on a podcast. I want to add that at the end, I said 10 microns is a thousandth of a millimeter, and I meant that a micron is. Technically, 10 microns is a hundredth of a millimeter. Anyway, Arwa spent five years working with an organism that was very hard to grow and has a complex and multifaceted genome, and she's published a lot of cool papers on photosynthetic pollinella. Please check them out for further reading. They're linked in the show notes. I recognize the concept of endosymbiosis is a little dense, so look out for the next episode where we tackle the same topic from a completely different angle. Between these two episodes, I think you'll all become primary endosymbiosis experts. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, subscribe, and share this podcast. Tiny Living Beings is a Couch Microscopy production. Intro music is by Elf Power, and outro and transition music is by El Felipe Benitez. For more information on microbes or the podcast in general, follow at couch underscore microscopy on Instagram or at couch microscopy on Twitter. You can also find some relevant merch on couchmicroscopy.com slash store. Thanks for listening and I hope you all have a great day.